I love Palm Sunday. I love the children waving those palm branches. I love the image of Jesus riding into town on the donkey as they shouted Hosanna. And I love that moment when the sixth graders splash into the waters of baptism, holding their breaths as each of us also hold our breaths in prayer for them to become the Christians that God has called them to be. And if you gave something up for Lent, well, you can finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. Easter is coming. And yet, there's also something rather ominous about this day. For we know that the very heart of God is about to break. The entire story of Jesus crescendos to this moment. And at this moment, we ask ourselves again if we are up to the challenge of following the dangerous path that Jesus walked. Today, yes, we shout and we rejoice, but today we also quiver with fear. Typically, on Palm Sunday, we, we think mostly about the parade itself. Scholars tell us that Jerusalem, normally housing about 50,000 residents, swelled to about 100,000 residents at this point. During Passover, the city reaches its breaking point. Rome, the oppressive ruling power, even sends in troops to squash any possible uprising or violent rebellion. Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan say that while Jesus is entering through the back or the side gate of the city with those leafy palm branches, that Pilate is simultaneously entering the central gates of the city on a chariot flanked by regal horses and surrounded by military armor. It is easy for us to see, even with these two opposing parades, that Jesus challenges the prevailing cultural wisdom. Jesus challenges nationalism and the abuse of power and injustice and all forms of domination and all of us who fall into the habit of keeping the status quo. Jesus demonstrates a revolutionary power, the power of grace and gentleness, the power of nonviolence and loving compassion. As Christians, we know that we too are called to speak truth to power, even in those instances when it might get us into trouble. Christianity is not for wimps. But one part of the story that we hardly ever focus on is what Jesus did when he arrived in the holy city of Jerusalem. We usually jump forward to look at the Last Supper or the trial or the cross itself. But today, let's slow it down in slow-mo for just a moment. What is the first thing that Jesus does when he arrives in Jerusalem? When he gets off the donkey and the cheering voices subside, what is it that Jesus has come to this city to say? Jesus steps into the temple. The last time that Luke placed him here in the temple, he was just a teenager. And now Jesus has come back as an adult to speak his mind. He confronts those of us who are insiders in religion. He confronts those of us who are ministers or deacons or greeters, saying, my house 
shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then Jesus drives them out. What? Why is Jesus driving people out of the house of worship? This is a terrible church growth move. We know that it was common practice in the time of Jesus for folks to stop on their way into worship to exchange their religious coins, their civic coins, for religious coins so they would have them when the offering plate was passed. We know that it was customary for them to have little booths outside for people to purchase animals for the sacrifice. So this custom itself is not the problem. But when Jesus says to them this phrase, den of robbers, they know. They know that Jesus is referring to a verse in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, where the faithful are accused of breaking the Ten Commandments during the week and then hiding in worship come the weekend. Think about it. A den is not the place that a crime would be committed. The criminals would commit the crime and then run and hide in the den or in the cave. And so what Jesus is saying is that they have made the temple into a place where they hide from their behavior, from mistreating the poor, from lying, from their collusion with Rome, from keeping the status quo. And then they come after all of that and hide in worship? Jesus challenges them to return the temple to a place where God is intimately encountered in prayer, not that the temple would be a place where we hide from our midweek behavior. If Jesus were to come to our church today, what do you imagine he would challenge us to do? I remember a few years ago, the kids in our youth group decided that we adults were not very good at taking care of God's creation. The youth in the youth group wrote a letter, I'll call it a manifesto, and challenged the congregation to begin recycling. And that's why when you leave worship, there are those beautiful wood-carved boxes where you can recycle your bulletin. And then after those kids graduated and went to college, another group of teens noticed that this church used a lot of paper cups. And they thought that was terrible for God's creation. And so they got their own plastic cups in the youth center. They wrote their names on them, and they would wash them after youth groups so that they would not contribute to more paper in the landfill. And then recently, one of my colleagues said, why are we printing so many agendas for staff meeting when we've all received a copy of the agenda electronically before the meeting? Sometimes we need to listen to the voices that challenge us. How are we in the church today challenged to create a sense of God's justice in the world? Recently, I read this novel called An American Marriage. It begins innocently enough with a young couple getting married, starting their careers. They've just finished college. He's a businessman in an executive training program, and she's an artist who has already caught the notice of several collectors around the world. The two of them have such bright futures. And then something terrible happens. They are on a trip to visit family. They stop and stay in a hotel. And a woman in the hotel accuses the husband of committing a horrific crime. Although he is completely innocent, he is convicted 
and sent to prison for more than a decade. And then this newlywed couple has to decide, what does it mean to be married? They cannot be in the same room together. They cannot start a family. It will be too late when he is released. And they wonder, both of them, if they should even stay married. But what gripped me most about this marriage was the realization that this couple, both African-American, the victims of a case of mistaken identity, were facing a crisis in their young lives that I had never once in my life imagined facing. As I read the book, the scales fell from my eyes, and I realized that this should never happen. And yet millions of my brothers and sisters in this nation live with this very real fear all the time. Why hadn't I been able to see that before? When Jesus comes into the city on the donkey, when he confronts the leaders of the temple, Jesus is challenging us to confront our own spiritual blindness. In the middle of the story, and didn't the youth do an amazing job reading that story, right in the middle, there are a couple of verses that I thought, there's not much action here. I'll just cut that part out so they won't have to read so long. And then I remembered that it could be the heart of the story because just after Jesus gets off the donkey, but before he goes into the temple to confront them, Jesus pauses to weep. Jesus weeps because they cannot recognize the way of God's peace, because God's ways are somehow hidden from our sight. Even Jesus pauses and weeps because we do not recognize when Jesus is right there in our midst. In the book of Luke, there is an often overlooked beatitude where Jesus says to his disciples, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, but how hard it is for you and I to really see. Anyone who is younger than me, especially you all right here, will not remember the names Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. But those of you older than me will quickly remember the cowboy-cowgirl duo singing and dancing on TV. Beth Johnson writes about the life that Roy Rogers and Dale Evans shared offstage as well. They got married and blended their families together, each bringing children into the marriage. And then they adopted four more children, including Mary, a Native American, John, a battered child from an orphanage in Kentucky, Marion from Scotland, Debbie, who was a Korean War orphan whose father was from Puerto Rico. And that may sound interesting to you and I today in 2019, but in 1950, a family with nine children, a multiracial family, this was rare. And then Dale Evans and Roy Rogers had a biological child, Robin, who was born with Down syndrome. When she was born, the doctors told her to put her away into a foster home, but they refused. They took her home, and she lived until just before her second birthday. Her mother wrote a book about her, 
The book was about how much love Robin had brought into their family, how much closer she had brought her parents together in their marriage, and how much she had taught them about the very presence of God and how they could be a caring presence to other children in need. The book was written by the mother, but it was written in the voice of Robin, the daughter, as if she was in heaven looking down upon them. And the book was called Angels Unaware, named after a verse in the book of Hebrews that says that when we welcome a stranger, we possibly are entertaining angels unaware. This moment in 1950 marked the beginning of a national openness to children with Down syndrome. For Dale Evans and Roy Rogers saw something other people weren't seeing. And because of that ability to see God right in their midst, in their daughter, they were able to challenge the status quo. Through Robin, the love of God visited them, and they challenged the rest of us to live differently. And today, I'm grateful that children like my grandson Jacob, who has autism, are no longer thought of as those who need to be put away but are fully embraced in society as God's complete and whole children. If there is one thing that Lent does for us, it reminds us that we are unable to completely see the ways of God. We are only human. On Ash Wednesday, we came here and marked on our foreheads the sign of the cross and heard the words, you are dust, and to dust you shall return because we can never really know the mind of God. And yet, there are these moments when God does break into our lives, like the moment when Jesus came riding in on a donkey, like the moment he walked into the temple, when Jesus said, through his tears, you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Will you and I recognize when God breaks into our own lives, our challenge, you see, our challenge is to see. And if we see, then we too will be equipped to challenge both the religious organization of which we are a part and the wider world where God's peace comes to reign. Leland Melvin was working for NASA he was participating in a routine training mission when a technician made a mistake that robbed him forever of the hearing in one ear. Because of this accident and his inability to hear, he was unable to go into space. But NASA had to figure out something to do with this brilliant scientist, and so they sent him to teach children, school children in Virginia about space exploration and to nominate teachers in their community who might be good teachers to go into space. It was during this mission that the children and Leland watched as the space shuttle, the Challenger, broke up on re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Leland was sent to notify the parents of some of the astronauts who had been on the Challenger. One of the fathers of one of the astronauts said to Leland, my son is gone, nothing can bring him back, 
but we can honor his legacy by going back into space. Can you help me with that? Leland didn't know what to say or what to do because he desperately wanted to honor their legacy and go into space, but he was physically unable. Until a NASA executive gave Leland a waiver and he began training for his first mission in space to install a $2 billion part. On that mission, Leland explained how he gained what he called orbital perspective. He said that while he was there in space, he saw so many different shades of blue that he ran out of words to describe them in his journal. Words like azure and indigo and dark blue and light blue and medium blue and bright blue. And he said in his Moth podcast story, it was impossible to come up with enough words to describe the beauty, but that wasn't the moment that changed his life. He said the moment on that mission that completely changed his life forever was the moment when the captain invited him over to break bread. And all the astronauts from different countries around the world gathered together with the floating food that was freeze-dried to share a meal, to break bread. And he realized that he was circling the globe with a German astronaut and a Russian astronaut, those from countries that had been our enemies and that they were going so fast around seeing each of their homes, breaking bread together, looking down at their collective home, the Earth. We all need this kind of orbital perspective, the perspective to see that God loves all of humanity, that God came among us in a person named Jesus to reveal for all of us a different way to live. What is it that you are being challenged to see?